Hi, I'm Ron Hogan, and you're listening to Life Stories, a Beatrice.com podcast where I talk to memoir writers about their lives and the art of writing memoir. My guest today is Emily Rapp, and we'll be talking about The Still Point of the Turning World, which was recently published by Penguin Press. Hi, Hello. Hello. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Parts of the story you've been telling over the last couple of years mm -hmm. in newspaper and magazine pieces, mm -hmm. and... I just want to sort of lay the basic framework for for what your memoir is about in terms of your son mm -hmm. and your, the diagnosis that you got very mm -hmm. early in his life. Mm -hmm. Right. So Ronan was nine months old when he was diagnosed with Tay-Sachs disease, which is a rare genetic neurological condition. Probably the worst disease of all time, but I suppose I'm biased. And what it what it what happens with children with Tay-Sachs is that they slowly lose all of their abilities, their physical abilities. They they go blind. They go they are paralyzed. They have seizures, and then they, they are unable to eat and swallow eventually. And that's because there's a an enzyme called Hex A that clears lipids in the body, and they lack this enzyme. So they're not they they can't. Their bodies are basically from the moment they're born, the brain is sort of slowly shutting it down. And this is something that, as an expectant mother, right. you had heard enough about that even though statistically you were at a low risk for it, mm -hmm. um, you decided to get tested and you thought you were clear. I did. I think, you know, I got all the genetic tests. I was very vigilant about that. And I, they asked me, are you Jewish? And I said, no. Rowan's father is Jewish. Um, he said, yes. But they said that for me, it was a low risk. I had a test anyway, and it came back no mutation detected because it only detects the, the, the six to nine most common mutations of Tay-Sachs, and there are over 100. Right. So and I have one outside those bounds. And it, ha and it has to be a thing where both parents... Both parents here. must have it, yes. Mm -hmm. And then when both parents have it, it's a one in four chance the child will have it. So not impossible odds, but you know, not great odds either when it comes to a, a diagnosis like this, which is not a livable thing. Right. And you were clear for the, the nine major types. Pretty much. I mean, it, if you read the fine print, you know, it says no mutation detected. Mm -hmm. And in order to have, if, if I wanted to know if I were at a higher risk, I would have had the DNA and the enzyme test together. But that is not offered as a standard prenatal screen. And they would have, I think, although obviously I can't go back in time, they wouldn't have recommended that for me because it's still considered a Jewish disease, even though it's not. So they would have said, like, that's crazy. It'll never happen. And um, that's one of the awareness pieces that I hope the book brings to people who are interested in having genetic testing. If they want to test for Tay-Sachs, they have to be pretty vigilant about getting it if they're not, not from an Ashkenazi Jewish background. Thinking that you were in the clear, mm -hmm. what was the turning point? What prompted you to go in and mm -hmm. find out Yeah, came up with? Well, what we realized was that Ronan wasn't sort of meeting the milestones. And, you know, for, for Rick and for me, it was our first child. So we didn't know, we didn't know what to expect, but he wasn't doing things, right? So the first step was to, to eliminate sight problems because he wasn't reaching out for things the way he should have been doing at that age. And so we went to an eye doctor and the eye doctor was the person who diagnosed him with Tay-Sachs because there's a retinal spot that's a signature of the disease, and he'd seen it one other time. You write in the opening chapters mm -hmm. about being completely devastated. And as you were pushing through those early days, the first realizations of how this was mm -hmm. you know, completely redefining mm -hmm. what it was to be Ronan's mother. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And just to be a person. I mean, I think, I mean, grief is different for everyone. Everyone manifests grief differently. And I think 
one of the things I learned from this experience is that it's really easy to judge people for their grief reactions because they can be extreme. And I was totally out of my mind those first three days. And after Ronan died, he passed away on February 15th. I didn't feel as badly as I did those first two weeks because I had, he'd gotten a death sentence. And by the time he passed away, he was ready to go. But when he was diagnosed, he was like a normal baby, he looked totally normal, he seemed fine. So that was really, for me, I think he kind of died on that day. And so, yeah, it was as if he had suddenly died. And it was awful. And and to, to face that next two years of, I mean, if you look up look it up online, it's just like a nightmare. So you have to make all these crazy decisions, knowing that everything you do is going to result in the death of your child. It's, it's, it's hideous. So yeah, the, those first, I'd say the first, oh, I don't know, year, I was sort of in a fog. But those first two weeks were particularly like stunningly awful. As you said, you know, over the course of these two mm-hmm. years, you've basically... At a, at a period in, in a child's development where many parents are building their hopes and aspirations yeah. for, for the future, yeah. you are, one, already preparing for his death. Yeah. And two, each of those moments that you do have with him becomes that much more significant because you know mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. time is running out. That's right. And also, you know, it's, it's, kind of a, it's kind of an exhausting way to live to know that like each moment is precious and try to cling to it. It's hard, and I think I'm really grateful to the National Tay-Sachs organization. I, I, the first conference I went to, I sat in a room with other moms, and they talked about this idea that an aspir- it is okay to have an aspiration for your child, in this case, to have a peaceful death. And that helped me sort of frame it as saying, like, okay, well, my, I can still have hopes for Ronan, because it's such a primal impulse as a parent to hope for your children. And, and that can be just as legitimate as hoping they get into some fancy preschool. I mean, it's the same. It comes from the same urge to protect and to usher forward. That was a huge turning point for me because I was like, okay, this is still this is still a task, and these other people have done it, and I don't, and and I can do it too if they've done it, and they'll help me, and they did. That's something that you write about, talking about making the decisions about mm-hmm. you know how to let Ronan live and and how to let Ronan die and. Mm-hmm. Dealing with the reactions of medical professionals and other people who, you know, when you decided to make the choice to preserve Ronan's quality of mm-hmm. life rather than trying to extend it by mm-hmm. numbers, mm-hmm. you know, the reactions of people who were like, what, you're not going to give him a feeding tube at the first opportunity? You're not yeah. going to do these things or those right. things? That was really hard, and it, I would get a little bit aggravated <laughs> in those sessions. I mean, in the end, ironically, we did use a nose tube for Ronan just to give him fluids, not to feed him, but to keep him comfortable. And I was opposed even to that, but we had talked with hospice, and I said, listen, this is a comfort care measure. So basically, the medical community in general, I don't want to make sweeping generalizations, but they, it's, it's about saving life. And that, that's sort of the MO. And, and, and that's fine. It's just that in this case, there was nothing for him in this world at, at some point. And I think sometimes we romanticize life in this way. And I can say with quite all honesty that when, when he did die, I felt it was better for him to be dead than to live in that body, as awful as that was, because he didn't want to be there. It was so clear that he was ready to go. And I think, you know, the, the difference between hospice and the general medical community is incredibly vast. Incredibly vast. Yeah, I was going to say that the hospice people 
understood immediately where you were coming from on this. They did. And they were totally... What what I love about hospice is there's no drama. Like, they've seen it all. So they're just like, yep, children die. We know this. We're pediatric hospice care workers. We have kids that are born with brain tumors. We have kids that are that get leukemia and die when they're nine. So they're they're not. I think what was hard for me, at least, I can only speak for myself, was that people would just like you would tell them this, and they would totally freak out, and it just kind of it tugs up all of your own terror and fear. And hospice were just like, okay, we can do this, and it was just like okay, and they were amazing. You also mentioned the support of the Tay-Sachs organization and other parents who have been through what you've yeah. been through. And it's clear from, from reading the book that, I mean, certainly they pulled you out of the abyss totally. in the to- in the first stages, but that as the two years progressed, they were a consistent lifeline. Consistently. What's great about that group of moms is I had my good friend in Boston actually signed me up for the National Tay-Sachs when I called her telling her she Googled it and marched across the park and signed me up. What's great about the, this community of moms is that most of us don't have a lot in common. We don't. We have. We're not. Don't have the same level of education. We might might not live in the same place. We might have very different religious and political views, and it doesn't matter. It's like the most amazing parenting group I've ever been a part of. I was briefly in in sort of a a newborn group when Ronan was really small, and I always found the conversations kind of a little dopey, frankly. And and but these women were just like totally real, and they would say it to you straight. And I really appreciated that. I don't know what I would have done without them because some of them had already lost their children. And one, the one that I was probably the closest to, her name is Becky, her her daughter died last February. And so, you know, she was sort of my mentor, my grief mentor in, in how to deal with this. And we don't have, I mean, we probably would never have known each other otherwise. But I relied on her. I think she's like a smart, fierce mom. And she taught me a lot about how to to try to handle myself with grace and to sort of not care what people think. It reminds me of something that you write about in the closing chapters mm-hmm. when you talk about going to the, the Buddhist workshop on uh, yeah. working with people who are dying, that it's like, you know, at a certain point you don't need more compassion. You need actual tools to get tools. you. To... Yeah. That death workshop, it's so funny. It was like learning death. I mean, the, everyone should go, I think, because we're all going to face it either in our, obviously in our own lives, but everyone has had an experience of loss and, at this event, we, you know, looked at people's final death photographs, and it was terrifying. So what the, what that weekend does, and what, what I think that kind of a, an experience can do, is it, it makes you force your, face your own mortality and understand that it's normal. It's part of the human condition is to live just next door to chaos and know that you could die at any moment. It's, it's not an easy reality to absorb, but it is the truth. And it's nice, exactly. It's nice to just have some truth, you know, no flowers and bunnies and platitudes, but just like, okay, this is what's happening to everyone. It's just, unfortunately, it's going to happen to Ronan before he turns three. You know, he's not going to have, his last months may not be the most terrific in his body. So it was fascinating. It was fascinating and it was also terrifying. Looking at other people's memoirs Mm -hmm. about how they Mm -hmm. deal with grief in their lives, it seems like one of your most common reactions to those memoirs was was not solace or, or comfort, but that they actually kind of got you madder. Yeah, <laughs> I was pretty mad. Yeah, I think the one I found the most useful was C.S. Lewis's A Grief Observed. It's a weird little book, and it's basically kind of a journal, a really tightly written journal about the loss of his wife. One moment he's kind of out of his mind, the other moment he's he feels really peaceful, the other moment he thinks he sees her, he's like running around in the gardens, or like rubbing his face in the dirt, and I just thought, yeah, that's grief. It's it's like it's madness and rage and and then moments of peace and he doesn't come down 
interestingly, because he was such a Christian, he doesn't really come down with any solid answers about why and how people die and where they go, which I'm sure was a shock to him since he was very Christian. He just, he grapples. And I found the grappling really great. And it's what, it really helped me manage my own feelings because it would take me places I didn't want to go. And then I would come back to places that were more comfortable. So I think I did a lot of my grief before Ronan died. And people sort of find that, I think, some people are very, they judge that because they think, well, how can you not be in pieces because your child is dead? And of course, I was in pieces when he got a death sentence. And then the rest of the time I thought, if I, if I, can, if I stay in that space and I don't talk about it or think about it, I'm going to die or go mad. Yeah. So I tried to find places where I could think about it. Yeah, the idea of like, you know, why are you not doing this media tour dressed in black and... Wailing. I mean, I don't know. I don't know the answer. I mean, I was definitely wailing and making everyone miserable when he was first diagnosed. And the people who've been with me on this journey know that I was hysterical. And I miss him and I loved him, but I did not want him to live with any more suffering. I wanted him to be free of that, as we all would want to be if we were in his position, in my opinion. I mean, people do whatever people's... Choices around life extension in their children is, is not my business because it's a deeply personal and horrific decision to make. But I wouldn't have wanted to live like that. And I, and, and his father also knew that that wouldn't be the way he would want to live. So we made a decision about Rona together. One of the other decisions that you made about your own life as, as this was happening was that, you know, as a writer, you had a choice. You know, do I write about this while it's happening or do I not? Mm-hmm. Eventually, you you started writing about this. We mentioned the newspaper and magazine pieces, but you were also maintaining a blog. It sounds like, from reading this, what was happening in the writing process was something other than catharsis, and I wanted to talk about what it was that that writing was for you. Um, I think it was a kind of catharsis. I don't think it was therapeutic. I, I would say that it was catharsis in the sense that I felt like I was getting down to something really necessary, and I also felt that by writing, it was connecting with life and other people, which I just felt like if I, if I isolated myself, I would just lose my mind, which I think is also a completely appropriate grief reaction to, to just like kind of hunker down. I think everyone's different. But yeah, I felt like the writing of the book, and then it suddenly became to me something really important about putting his story in the world, which was a way of, in the beginning, of making him immortal in some way. He's alive in the book, and that was really important to me, that he was alive in the book, and that people could understand that he, you know, the kinds of lessons that he imparted to lots of different people. So yeah, I think the, the writing totally saved me. And I don't know what I would have done if I hadn't been able to write about it. And believe me, it completely surprised me because I've been planning about writing for, usually sit down and you're like, ugh, here we go. You know, and I just don't do that anymore. And I think some people were and still are really judgmental about the fact that I was writing inside the experience rather than just staring at my son's face and then I took opportunities to do it and I don't care because that was the thing that I felt I could offer Ronan was a story of his life and I did it for him and I felt that it also in doing that made me feel like I could go on with my life and I don't think that any child would want his parent to just throw themselves on the funeral pyre and I think we have in this culture and in the world in general, I guess more in this culture, this understanding of what grief is supposed to look like. And it doesn't look like anything. It looks like however the person manifests it. That was also an interesting experience where people were like, oh, I can't believe you're, you're doing that. Like, why aren't you at home all the time? And I just thought, A, I have a job, and B, I can't do that. Mm-hmm. That's not the way I'm going to manage the situation. It's something that in different ways you've been dealing with 
pretty much entire life. In your first memoir, Poster Child, you mm-hmm. write about growing up with your own disability mm-hmm. and the reactions that you get from people about yeah. you being out in public. And yeah, 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 yeah. You know, here you are going through this again, except now they're talking about you and your son. Yeah. I know. It was like a double whammy. Yeah, that was really hard for me. It was just kind of, you know, people would people literally would say to me, you must feel cursed. And I would just be like, on what planet is that helpful? On what planet? Or you're cursed with bad manners or whatever it is. But I, I, I did feel that from people. And I, I think that also was an impetus for writing the book was that I just didn't want Ronan to be, and I don't think he was. I mean, his he was biologically, yes, tragic, but his life wasn't tragic in some in some important way. And he mattered to many people and not just me. And he, he matters to the world because I think he's a teacher about ways we, we'd want to try to live and we maybe try and fail and that's fine too. It, it did sort of bring me to this place of finally <laughs> that there's no right way of living or right way of life or right body. And, and it was a pretty brutal way to learn that lesson. And I think sometimes it rears its head, but most of the, most of the time I'm just like, I just don't, I do not care what people think of how I live my life anymore. And I think that was a gift I got from Ronan and it has interesting repercussions sometimes, but it's still, it's still a liberation in some ways. Circling back to something that we had said earlier, where your three years with Ronan weren't just about learning to be a parent in the moment to him. It was about learning to be human. Yeah. Yeah. In in every moment with or without him. Exactly. He was the instrument of so much awareness in my life and in other people's lives too. I mean, people who never, people who held him for the first time, many of whom were people who knew me, they would just cry because he was so, so innocent and completely good and completely helpless. And when you're around someone like that who absolutely needs other people, it does sort of trigger in you this idea that every life is in its own way, when it ends up in the world, is, is doing something. Even if he's not doing anything. I mean, he didn't, do stuff. He was like immobile for most of the last part of his life, but he had the most incredible presence. And, and many, many people commented on that. You know, he inspired love in people, a kind of pure love. So that, that was pretty remarkable to see. And not even just people with, that had been friends um, of mine or friends of his father's, but people, just strangers really responded to this idea that, you know, anyone can be a teacher about how to live. There's a point where you quote, Harold Kushner, you know, when bad things happen to good people. And the takeaway from the section that you quote from him is, if you look at anybody's life, mm-hmm. you're probably going to see pain and suffering that looks incomparable to anything else that anybody else has gone through in life. And it's not about ranking. The ranking, you know, the yeah, ranking yeah, yeah. And it seems like the flip side of that and something else that you've learned from, from Ronan is that even in a life that to an outside observer looks horrible and painful and, mm-hmm. and miserable. If we could get close enough, if we could get the right perspective, we would see the moments of joy and mm-hmm. bliss and, and, and happiness. Exactly. He put it exactly, that's exactly how I was, had said it. Well, he said it better. <laughs> you know, Kushner, that book was my, my dad read that book. I remember the cover so vividly in their bedroom on this nightstand. And it did kind of, it, I liked it so much the way he talked about having lost his own child through some kind of weird, you know, funky illness that took his life. If you look deeply enough into someone's life, you will find pain and suffering. Um, and sometimes it, you, you, you can't, you can't help them or you don't want to manage it or whatever it is. But this idea that you, someone want to win the suffering war is, is pretty stupid, but people kind of do that. They, they want to win the other war, which is the, 
I have the best life war, and they also want to win the war that they're, like, the most victimized. And that, to me, is very strange. And I think it's it's just kind of wrong-headed and not very logical. Not that that's the point, but it just doesn't make sense. By the time you get to the end of the memoir, and probably more from the moment that you the book ends and your life mm-hmm. continues, you've kind of dropped out of that competition in a... In yeah, a very fundamental way. I think so. I think so. I feel really grateful that I was Ron's mother, and I would have done anything to not have him have Tay-Sachs. But because I he did, I feel like he was a huge gift to me, and my responsibility in the wake of his death is to live as big and large as I can, because he never got the chance to make any choices about how to live his life. And I actually, my friend, the writer Cheryl Strayed, when, when this was for, when she said once wrote to me like you survive this sorrow you have an obligation to continue because you were given a life that that doesn't have this compromising situation and you have you can't you can't just go inside the grief and end it and and that was that stuck with me one of the arenas in which this transformation is showing itself is in the writing we talked a little mm-hmm. bit about before about how it saved you it also seems like what your experience also enabled you to come back to writing mm-hmm. at a point at which you'd kind of lost your way. I think I, for always for me, I would write the best stuff when I was really angry because <laughs> it was so focusing, sort of disturbing. But I was so angry when Ron was diagnosed at everybody and myself and the world and, you know, God, whoever that is, that I just was totally focused on, on writing. And it, it just burned away all of the neurosis. And that has kind of stayed because when I sit down, I just have sort of the somatic memory of just being compelled, compelled, compelled to write. And I don't feel that kind of urgency anymore, but I'd write with, with more intention than I used to. I think that was also a, a gift that I wish I hadn't needed, that I didn't get from my son. I wish it could have come somewhere else, but it is, it is something that he gave me was focus. And, you know, when I was writing the book, I didn't think about it as a book. I was writing those blogs because I felt like it was a way of connecting with people. And I felt like I had to do that in order to to stay with my son and not literally not take my life because that's what I wanted to do. And then it kind of grew into something else. But originally it was just sort of like the shout out into the void, kind of an organized shout out. <laughs> so it was less it was less messy than if someone were to call me on the phone and get this like nutso person who just couldn't keep their emotions together. In a way... It feels like perhaps the book is the first step or the first couple of steps in your being able to mentor mm-hmm. to yeah. the people who come after you. Yeah, I mean, those Tay-Sachs conferences, I've been to two now, one with, with Ronan last year and then one when he was just diagnosed, one in Boston and one in um, Orlando, and I'm going again in San Diego this April, is that it's it's a really hard place to be because the kids are sick and, and you know that the next year there's not going to be some of them. <laughs> That some of them will be gone. And there's a memorial that is like one of the most public displays of grief I've ever seen. And I think that's so healthy. It's people wailing and screaming and crying their faces off. And they put the picture of the, the, the dead child the, or the, past, the child has passed away on the screen. And parents go up and light a candle. And it's kind of this ritual grief howl. And I've never seen anything like that because Protestants don't do that. But this was people from all religious backgrounds who are just kind of united in this joint pain. And I will be involved with that organization until I die because I want people to know that they are not alone 
and that this organization exists to help them. And that's what it does. I mean, it's, it is not paying lip service to helping. I sent Ronan's bath chair to a family whose child is still living. Equipment gets passed around because it's expensive, and a lot of people don't have the money or the insurance won't cover it. Calls in the middle of the night, texts in the middle of the night. Like, sometimes people say, call me anytime, and then you do, and like, they're not there. <laughs> but these these women mean it. Like, they, they have their phone on, and, they're, and you call them, and you're like, ugh. And I did that a lot. At 2 o'clock in the morning in Seattle, 3 o'clock in the morning in Florida, I would call these women and just be like, I, I, there's no way I can do this. And they'd be like, yes, you can. What else is in your immediate future, particularly your writing future? I'm working on a novel who isn't. Everyone says that. I feel like so kind of dork, dorky saying that. But I am working on a novel. And I'm actually interested in, in continuing to write short essays about topics that I'm passionate about. I haven't given it a, a great deal of thought because Ronan so recently died and Lots of things are in upheaval, but I'm going to keep writing, and I'm going to I'm going to be able to do it. I think because I think Ronan taught me the kind of writer I wanted to be. I wish I hadn't lost him as a result. I would trade it all to have him back. But I'm going to go on. I'm going to do that, and I'm going to dedicate every word to that experience I had with him. Well, I know a lot of people who will be looking forward to seeing those words when Thank they come. You. I'm Ron Hogan. I've been talking with Emily Rapp for Life Stories. I hope you will go out and find the still point of the turning world. It's from Penguin Press. And I hope you'll come back and listen to another episode of Life Stories soon. Thank you.